You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Inflation, recession, stagflation. Just what the hell is going on? Hi there. Thanks for tuning in to another Real Vision podcast. So, what the hell is going on? We all want to know. Here at Real Vision, we've debuted a special series called Global Recession. Is everyone wrong? We've called on the world's best experts, including Juliette de Klerk, David Rosenberg, Peter Zion, Pierre Andoran, and many more, to try and help us make sense of things. These real experts will be giving Real Vision members in-depth, long-form analysis on the real stuff that's happening. Best of all, you can get access to all 14 days of Global Recession, Is Everyone Wrong?, for just $1. Yep, $1. So head to realvision.com slash global recession. That's realvision.com slash global recession to join us on this epic two-week journey of discovery. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Friday, May 20th, 2022. I'm Ash Bennington, joined today by Jim Bianco, president of Bianco Research, the perfect guy to have with us on this day as the S&P 500 enters bear market territory. Jim, let's break it down, do the big picture. I know that there are other financial news networks right now. They're, they're breaking out their fanciest graphics, getting their uh, like really like discordant music out. You got some 25-year-old producers who get to use the word bear market for the first time in their professional career. We're not going to do any of that, Jim. What's the big picture? What's really happening right now? Well, yeah, they don't get to say bear market anymore because we're closing uh, up 10 cents on the day. So it's a giant round trip. Uh, seven Jim, weeks in hey, a row. That let me ask you this. This is like the angels dancing on the head of the pin, like medieval churchman philosophy question. But how do they actually date bear markets? Is it from you take basically the the you I guess you date the bull market, right? So you take the prior low and then you wait till it hits 20 percent up from the prior low and then you hold the dating back from the uh, the moment of the low uh, and then you run it forward. Is that roughly right? And by the way, do they do it intraday or is it uh, only on closes? Good question. All of this is kind of made up stuff anyway that we needed definitions for a bear or bull market. But usually the, the media defined bear market is close to close from the high uh, down 20 percent. We did it intraday today, but this furious rally back right at the last half hour of the day pushed right. us back above it. Uh, but looking big picture, this is the seventh week in a row that the market is down. Right. You got to go back to 2001, 21 years ago, to find a string of seven mm -hmm. weeks in a row. And what has undergird that whole seven-week decline has been a realization Fed policy has as part of its arsenal lower stock prices to rein in demand to bring down inflation. Federal Reserve wants you to lose money. They, they need you to lose money in order for inflation to come down. So they're walking around the halls of the Echoes building you know, high-fiving each other that, that their policy is working right now. And it's the way that they see it. I know investors don't see it that way, right. but they do. 
Well, Jim, this is why I'm so glad we have you here today to really cut through to the core of what's happening. Uh, the silly music uh, and the graphics we'll leave to someone else, but talk a little bit about this framework, about why the Fed is so trapped with monetary policy, how they've gotten behind the curve, and how they're trying to steer this impossible course between the Scylla and Charybdis uh, of lower asset prices on the one hand, uh, and this dire threat that inflation represents to ordinary uh, Americans on the other. So when are we going to start quoting uh, the Book of Revelations here in this interview as well? Uh, <clears throat> it all started in 2019 with the Fed. The Fed had a series of, of uh, meetings called the Fed Listens Tour. And at that time, they were talking about them. Remember, we had sub 2% inflation for nearly a decade. The Fed couldn't create inflation no matter how much they tried. And they folk, and what came out of those meetings was what they referred to as the new framework, a focus on unemployment. We are going to run the economy hot till we get to full employment. And if inflation goes up, we can tolerate it because it's more important to get people jobs than if we have a little bit of a bump up of inflation. That was instituted in August of 2020, that new framework policy that was designed in 2019. Well, something happened in between, and that was the pan pandemic. And I think it fundamentally changed the economy. I've talked about this here and in other places, work from home and a lot of other things. This is not the 2019 economy. So when the Fed instituted this new framework and inflation started up, that's when they invented the word transitory to basically dismiss it because we got to get people back to work. And so inflation was transitory. And by the time they abandoned transitory, we were already at 6% inflation on our way to 8% inflation. So what I'm trying to argue here is understand that the Fed made a policy mistake last year by using the word transitory. This year is the consequence of last year's mistake. And so they've really got no choice at this point but to follow through. The single biggest problem that the economy has, the single biggest political problem that Washington has is inflation. Destroying the stock market is not as big a deal as inflation. And to this day, this is a difficult thing for a lot of investors to get their head around. Bank of America had a survey out of 288 global fund managers this week. And they, they said that the number one issue is now tightening monetary policy and global recession. Number three is inflation. Inflation had been number one for a year. And they are predicting, well, now that we're having a terrible year, we being global fund managers, the Fed is gonna come to our rescue. That was the case from 2008 to 2021. They would always ride to the rescue. But now with 8% inflation, game has changed. And it's incredible to me how many people are really struggling to understand that it has changed and lower stock prices are a policy tool in trying to get back at inflation. And this is why it's been so punishing for investors because they, they really can't believe it. No, the Fed's not at here to make me poor. The Fed's not here. They always bail us out. They always ride to the rescue. They always money printer go burr when markets get wobbly. And they will at any moment. And that's what the Bank of America survey seem to be saying, that they think that the Fed is about ready to abandon the rate hikes, turn on the money printers, 
and try and support the market. They're not until they see real signs that inflation is past its peak. Yeah. So inflation, obviously the number one concern here. Um, you know, you frame that so well, Jim. I talked about it, the silicon charybdis of asset prices uh, and inflation. But in reality, the dual mandate uh, is actually the Federal Reserve's dual mandate is actually about maximum sustainable employment uh, and stable prices. Now, of course, uh, the policies that support employment are also correlated with GDP growth and asset prices. But give us a little bit of a sense, just to leave no stone unturned, to really talk about first principles here. Talk a little bit about the transmission mechanism between ultra-accommodative monetary policy, low interest rates, and rising asset prices. Yeah, so when the, when the Fed and when central banks started to um, go ultra-accommodative, printing money, driving rates to zero in the United States, negative in Europe, what we found was those policies did not really translate into higher GDP. They didn't translate into higher employment. They did translate into higher asset prices. Right. Because as they started to print money, that it just found its way into asset prices. That was the whole point of the new framework in 2019 was, why aren't we producing gobs and gobs of jobs Instead, of we're producing gobs and gobs of S&P points is right. what we seem to be doing. When, they, when we got to the pandemic, the United States did something that no other developed country did. And that was we stimulated more than anybody else. The combination of fiscal stimulus and monetary stimulus, all of those, uh, all of those uh, checks that we sent out, uh, stimulus checks that we sent out, PPP loans, the Fed's quantitative easing uh, as well. We were, as a percentage GDP, the highest in the developed world. As a consequence of that, we have the highest inflation, or at least we did have the highest inflation in the developed world until this week when the UK surpassed us with 9% inflation. But for most of the last 18 months, we were number one in the world for, in terms of inflation. So what the Fed has correctly seeing is we're at 8% inflation. The San Francisco Fed did a study. They think that three of those 8% in the inflation rate is excess, stim is excess demand or all of the stimulus that we did. So what does the Fed think that they could accomplish with all of this Fed tightening now? They think they could take 3% out of the inflation rate. The other five is the combination of the 2% that they believe is normally there plus 3% because of supply chain problems. So they can't fix it all the way to 2%, but they can get us a long way towards it. And that seems to be the way that the Fed is going. And one last thing, J J Chairman Powell keeps citing a statistic over and over again, and that's from the JOLTS report, the Job Opening Labor Turnover Report that says that there's 11 million open jobs in the United States, almost 12 million open jobs, advertised jobs, and there's about six and a half million unemployed. As he puts it, there's 1.9 jobs open for every unemployed person. Now, of course, not everybody's qualified for every job, either geographically or educationally or experience-wise for every job, but we've never seen anything like this. They'd have so many open jobs relative to unemployed. And what Paul seems to be saying is, yeah, I could keep jamming rates and jamming rates. And if you are a stock investor, I can make your life miserable and you're going to park your car in your garage and you're going to stop spending money. But 
I won't create unemployment because we've got 1.9 open jobs for every unemployed person. I could maybe lower that ratio, but I'm not going to throw people out of work. That is key whenever you hear him talk. Whenever he talks about demand is out of whack, which is what he said last week, or the labor market is booming, that means here comes another 50 right at you to make sure that the stock market takes another hit. So, I mean, this is not don't fight the Fed. This is the Fed is your enemy out to kill you is what this policy is right now. And uh, it is it is why we've seen through May 20th, one of the worst markets. We've had almost 100 years of data for the S&P. And through May 20th, only 1932 and 1940 have been worse starts to the year through May 20th than 2022. This is tracking one of the worst years ever. You remember in previous ones, I used to talk about the bond market was having its worst year in 200 years. Well, the stock market's now starting to get close to that, at least on a calendar year uh, count of the returns. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Jim, to talk about why uh, the Fed wants to do this. I want to call back uh, to something very wise that a guest named Jim Bianco said on with a few weeks ago with me, where you said effectively, hey, look, you know, the thing to understand about unemployment versus inflation, when we reached, I think the number was around 15 uh, percent at the peak in uh, whatever it is, looks like April 2020 on this chart uh, of unemployment, which hadn't been seen in the United States uh, since the Great Depression. When we reached that number, uh, as you pointed out, that means whatever it is, one in six or so people in the labor market are unemployed. But when you have inflation, you have 100% of the people in the labor market, whether employed or unemployed, paying those higher prices at the pump, at the grocery store, and elsewhere in their lives. It causes tremendous pain. It does. And that's really what's important to understand. Every single person in the country gets hit by inflation. No one is spared. Elon Musk is hit by inflation. He's just got the money just to not notice, but he's paying higher prices. Tesla is paying higher prices. SpaceX is paying higher prices as well, too. And so no one is spared by it. This is right. why inflation has become such a big issue. While in, in Washington, approval ratings are down. The outlook for Congress for the, the incumbents is bleak. Uh, and they are starting to panic. Earlier this week, the House passed a bill against excess prices and gouging in the gas in the gas market, gasoline market. That is another that is a euphemistic way of saying price controls. They passed a bill in the House to institute price controls on gasoline. Now it's probably not going to get cloture. It'll be filibustered in the Senate, and it won't make it to Biden's desk. But they are panicking. They need prices to stop going up. And to some extent, I think that's also motivating the Fed. If the Fed doesn't get aggressive in trying to at least look like they're raising rates, look like they're trying to do something about inflation, if not actually do something about inflation, Congress will take matters into their own hands 
and they will pass a series of very bad bills at price controls. Why are price controls bad? Because if you put price controls on something and you won't, and by law, you can't raise your price, but your costs go up and you're at a loss, you just shut down and you have shortages. So when we had price controls in the 70s, we had gas lines, we had food lines. You just, you want to get it cheap? Fine, but you can't get it. You could stand in line for 45 minutes to buy it because there's not enough of it to go around. That's the problem with, with price controls is it creates shortages. And that could be much worse than having higher prices. So I think the Fed sees this. They don't want Congress to do something like this. So Paul is saying, wait, don't you let me do this. And the administration is more than happy to say inflation is the big issue. There's this guy named Jay. He's going to fix it. It's all on him. If he doesn't fix it, take it out on him. Don't take it out on us over here in Washington. Yeah, it's also interesting, Jim, to your point, that this is really, uh, in many ways, for the folks who are working, the staff economists who are working at the Fed, uh, for people who are managing money, for the most part, this is ancient history. Uh, this is stuff that dates back to the Nixon administration. In fact, uh, the Wall Street Journal uh, recently, I think last August, ran a piece called Nixon Taught Us How Not to Fight Inflation. This idea, by the way, a Republican president uh, who instituted these price controls. Uh, during that period, we should point out, we didn't have an existing supply chain crisis. Now, there was an oil shock, the Yom Kippur War of 1973, that later came. But we're starting this out from a baseline of having massively, massively dislocated supply chains, this era of just-in-time inventory, all of these challenges we've never seen before. You know, a couple of things. First of all, that was last August. That was when it wasn't a crisis and there wasn't an election less than six months away. So politicians could act rational. But now that we're within six months of an election and a lot of politicians are seeing that their careers are at jeopardy, they are panicking. So rational thought goes out the door. And what you get is political expediency. We need prices down, pass a law to just force them down. Will it create a disaster? Probably. But at least I'll be in office in 2023 to fix the disaster, as opposed to being unemployed in 2023, and somebody else will be in my seat uh, dealing with it. So that's kind of that's kind of their mentality. Also, as far as the supply chain goes, talked about this here before. I, I really think if you really want a good handle on the supply chain, you should read some of the trade magazines, Freight Waves, American Shipper, G Captain. They really have a much different view of the supply chain than you're getting from Wall Street or the traditional financial media. Yesterday, FreightWaves president put out an op-ed. Um, Craig Fuller, who's pretty wired is into the in the shipping and the supply chain as much as anybody else, and it was titled "The Supply Chain Will Never Get Fixed. It Will Never Be Better." Now he was making a point that in order for it to get fixed, there needs to be massive and wholesale changes to the whole supply chain. It is not a case like Wall Street wants to tell you, oh, just sit there and wait, and it will get better all by itself. Or it, it would get better if it wasn't for this never-ending series of one-off problems, the latest being the, the shutdowns in China. And now that China's on the verge of reopening, there's going to be this massive shipping that's going to go on and we're going to have another bottleneck one more time 
I think his larger point was right. This is going to be the way the supply chain works until we start to realize it needs to be restructured, maybe from the ground up, and that we're not going to get away from these problems for a long time. And I'll, I'll tease something here, Ash. Next Tuesday, the 24th, I have an interview on Real Vision coming out with Professor Nick Bloom of Stanford University. He's probably the world's leading expert in work from home. And we talked about on that interview how work from home is a real thing. It is we are never going back to the office uh, in, to, in the, to the degree that we saw pre-pandemic. And we're probably going to see more remote work and work from home. And that has huge changes to the economy. One quick statistic for you. A study done two weeks ago, only 8% of offices in Manhattan are full-time right now. And it probably will never see 10%. The rest of them are either fully remote or hybrid um, at this point. What does that mean? When you're at home, your consumption basket changes. You consume more things, less services. The supply chain is in chronic disarray because we are consuming things differently. I think the thing that was missed in the Target debacle earlier this week when Target reported their earnings and they had this big bloated inventory and their earnings were way down – was they don't get it either. They've got a lot of stuff that they put on the shelves nobody wants to buy because their life has changed. They're working from home. They need other things. Unless they, they, they don't need the things that in the proportions that they bought them in 2019. The proportions in 2022 are vastly different. So we need to have a restructuring of everything. We don't want to have that restructuring. We want to have an argument whether or not we're going to go back to the office in the first place. I think that's been settled. We're not. And we need to start restructuring. I think the stock market's also starting to get that, too, that that restructuring needs to take place. And this is going to be a slow and grind as we try and figure out what the post-pandemic economy looks like. One last thought for you. In um, There's a lot of people that keep saying, when the economy reopens. It is. It's reopened, ED, past tense. This is it. It ain't going to reopen any more than it is. And this is the economy that we have now. And we need to start to understand that and not wait around for some other economy to arrive that we'd like to have. Jim, we could talk for about three hours on the points you just made there. Uh, First, by the way, I'm aggressively neutral on just about everything. One thing I'm not aggressively neutral about is the fact that the Mad Men days of going into an office from Monday till Friday from 8.30 a.m. till 5 p.m. are just over. It's done. It's amazing to me that the world hasn't figured that out yet. I think you're absolutely spot on about that. But I want to come back to something that you said, some very sobering remarks about the supply chain from the research that you've been doing within the industry, which I think is just fascinating. This idea that supply chains are fundamentally broken. What in a short framework, what is the very root cause of why those supply chains have broken so badly, Jim? We, we, we want different things. The supply chain is predicated on a basket of things that we buy in certain proportions that was pre-pandemic. So that gets shipped in those proportions as if we were still purchasing them in that pre-pandemic basket. We have a new basket. We need to start saying to the Chinese suppliers, make less of these things, make more of these things, ship these things more frequently, these things less frequently. Mm. We're just everything on the wall. 
just make whatever you can, put it on a boat and send it to LA and get it into the get it into the supply chain. And so therefore we go to the store and we find that things are not there what we want. Baby formula is the new one this week. There was bigger supply chain problems before that. And there's going to be other supply chain problems as we move forward from here. And it's just going to be rolling, never-ending type of things. Semiconductors is another problem that we yeah. seem to be having. So now we've got a car problem and we've got very high car problems. These are not just a flock of black swans, one-off unrelated events that all seem to happen at the same time. And so I think what we need to do is have that conversation. What does a person buy post-pandemic? We don't want to have that conversation. We want to say, you're lazy, go back to the office. Or when the recession hits, they'll come begging to go back to the office. And part of the problem is, who wants to go back to the office? A bunch of boomer managers want to go back to the office because that's the way they know how to do things. And so they're the, and by the way, boomer managers go by the name of Jamie Dimon or Dave Solomon or Goldman Sachs, and that they want everybody back in the office five days a week because that's how they do things. And they think that's how you should do things as well, too. And so you still get that resistance. And don't discount the idea that Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan are very influential with the rest of the economy because their analysts are in the office five days a week writing reports that when you get back to the office five days a week, this is how it's going to be. Well, you're the only guys that are going back. You're the 8% in Manhattan that are back in the office five days a week. And uh, yeah. you're the outlier. Goldman Sachs is the outlier right now. Yeah. Well, someday, hopefully, we'll get my, uh, my neighbor, Jamie Dimon, on to uh, give his perspective on this. But let me ask you this, a counter case that a really sophisticated uh, investor friend of mine made the other day, uh, which was the following, uh, that effectively, the reason that the uh, managers, the boomer managers, are, are basically forced to comply with the new world right now is because the labor market is so tight. But when unemployment rate rises, they're not going to have the power that they do. And you are going to see, in this investor's view, at least a, a shift back toward more of the old way of doing things. You know, we'll see, because you had that high unemployment um, economy eight months ago, 10 months ago, 15 months ago, and there was still no desire and there was still a tremendous pushback to returning to the office. I think that there's going to always, let me, let me say it a different way. There's always going to be a need for people that work together to congregate with each other, to interact with each other. But I think the way that we do it now, you know, to get on some smelly N train and go downtown or get on the New Jersey transit and go through the Port Authority, that that's not the way it's going to work. I mean, we're right. getting so desperate to get people back to the office that um, Eric Adams, the mayor of New York, a couple of days ago, asked Jamie Dimon to start taking the subway to J.P. Morgan's headquarters. Good luck with that one as far as trying to get him to go on the subway five days a week. You might get him to go on the subway once with 50 reporters. But after that, he's never going to see he's never going to be found dead down there uh, as well, too. So it's just another sign that they're getting that they're, they don't know what to do. It's as post is charting to say, let's talk about the new post pandemic economy. We just want to continue to try and get people to go back to the old economy. So, yeah, when the re when the recession hits and unemployment goes up and people are a little bit more desperate for jobs, the problem is we will have already adjusted to a remote work work from home environment. 
And I don't think going back to the office is going to be the answer because then there will be a recovery and people will quit again. So it will, if, at best, it could be only temporary. Well, I'd love to see it. That's my subway station right down the corner. So that'd be fantastic. Uh, Jim, I very deliberately avoided talking about the closing numbers for the day because I know that's what the other guys are doing with dramatic music and graphics. But I do want to just hit this really quickly. So basically, Dow Jones Industrial Average and S&P 500 pretty much onched on the day. They're basically flat. It's uh, one-tenth of 1% up on S&P 500 closing out here uh, at 3,901 uh, or thereabouts. NASDAQ off roughly three-tenths of 1% on the day. Jim, I, we've just blown through time here. It's flown by dramatically quickly. What else are you looking at, particularly on a going forward basis? The bond market, I think, is going to be the big uh, key for me here. It the 10-year yield peaked at 320 uh, last week. It's 280 right now. It's down 40 basis points. But I think a lot of that has been crash insurance. People have been buying long-duration fixed-income securities like treasuries because they're fearing that the stock market might crash. And for a couple of moments this week, it looked like that might come to fruition. Um, is 320 the peak in interest rates? I like to say I'm open to the idea but what would really tell me that that is the peak of rates is if we could string together more than two days of a rally in the stock market, uh, do interest rates go, does the 10-year yield go zooming back above 3%? It did last week when we actually tried to bounce. It went back to 309. It did three days ago when we tried to bounce. It went back above 3%. So if that's what, if that, if it's really crash insurance is what bonds are, minute that we start getting the stock market getting its sea legs, it'll probably go right back above 310 and challenge that 320 peak of last week, meaning that the bond sell-off is not over. If, on the other hand, we do rally back in stocks for more than two or three days and bond yields still stay at 280, and then we got something that we might have seen a peak in interest rates. I tend to think if stocks are oversold and they're ready to bounce, we're probably going to see a, a move back above 3%. And we're not done with the rally. The other one I would look at is crude oil. Crude oil is up today. Uh, demand destruction is no is not there in the energy market. We're at 110 on crude on crude prices. The national average for gasoline is 303 $4.59 a, a, a gallon, a new all-time high today. Uh, so if you're looking for demand destruction, a place you'd see it would be in gas prices, and that's not showing up yet either. And that's got to be discerning for the Fed because they want to see prices come down. And a leading indicator that would be a peak in gas prices. We haven't seen it yet. Yeah. So one of our viewers uh, typed into the uh, chat on YouTube uh, that they were seeing something. I think six thirty-eight a gallon uh, where they were for gas. Jim, you they got to be in California. They they <laughs> yeah. have to be in California. That's what I was thinking. Uh, exactly. Yeah. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Uh, Jim, you pivoted and talked a little bit about the bond market. I just wanted to hit this clip before we went out, uh, talking about the broader macro picture. This is a conversation that Raul Powell had with Dario Perkins, Managing Director, Global Macro at TS Lombard, uh, coming out on Essential Plus and Pro 
today. Let's take a look at this clip. If you can look beyond this growth scare, this soft patch, this immediate recession risk, I think you know the next decade is all about the tangible twenties, and it's about a different type of portfolio. It's about getting exposure to the real economy. It's about commodities. It's about gold. It's about value stocks. It's you know looking at what's going to drive growth over the next decade. But you know that's a pretty long-term way to think about asset allocation, given the environment that we face right now. And if you look at value versus growth, I mean, value has been going down as well in the last few weeks because this is just a, you know, selling off everything. So even though it provides a kind of relative trade, it's not getting as bad as growth, you know, in absolute terms, you're getting hosed on everything. Uh, and so, you know, this is just, I think this is naturally, you want to be, you know, very conservative right now. Jim, I know you have some thoughts uh, about that clip, but I know you want to also get to some of the questions coming in directly from our viewers right now. Uh, here's one from Paul E. from the Real Vision site that I think says it all. Jim, what body armor do we need to be wearing to survive in this market? Uh, boy, that's going to be a tough one because what's happening is stocks and bonds, foreign and domestic, are all down. All asset classes are losing you money. This is a, the biggest sell-off we've seen in all asset classes in over 40 years. Uh, so it's a very, very difficult one. But the only thing that would work is what I like to call idiosyncratic investments, like a particular stock or a deal or a limited partnership, if you've got some kind of plans on that. But broad trends, hoping for the market on a macro basis to help you, it isn't right now. And it won't until we see signs that inflation is really coming down. Yeah. Unfortunately, we're running out of time, but that's a perfect question to be the stand-in, I think, for many of the questions that we're seeing uh, touching on similar points. Jim, 60 seconds or less, final thoughts that you'd like to leave us with. This is an unusual market for a lot of us because it's been an unusual period that we've got all of this inflation. Uh, and so it is a difficult thing for people to kind of pivot to a new inflationary environment because a lot of people still think, that this inflation will begat deflation in the future and the like. And Dario said that in his clips as well, too, that commodities and value stocks are going to be the place to be. And I agree with him because I think we're going to have persistent inflation. If nothing else, my supply chain comments, that friction of, of supply chains getting fixed, which is going to take a while, it's going to leave us with a friction of inflation. And we need to start to think about how to invest in that type of environment. Yeah. Jim Bianco, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks again for watching the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I will be back on Monday with Jared Dillian. Finally, on a personal note, I just want to say thank you. I saw Real Vision put out a tweet today. Uh, this is the 500th show. I think this is 501 or 502 for me. The only reason I get to do this is because you guys watch, and I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's a really complicated world out there. We've got massive inflation, recession fears, war in Europe, COVID, China issues. What the hell's happening? Everyone's got an opinion, but who's right, who's wrong? As co-founder of Real Vision, I've got my own view, but maybe I'm wrong too. And I want to go and find out more from real experts, real in-depth analysis. And I've hand-chosen my experts for this two-week journey of discovery in global recession. Is everyone wrong? I've chosen people like Peter Zihan to talk to him about geopolitics, David Rosenberg about the economy, and Pierre Andran, the world's most famous energy trader, about how to navigate the oil markets and where it's all going. This starts on May the 2nd, 
and I'm going to learn so much about what really is going on and how to best navigate it. Yes, not everybody's going to be saying the same thing, but it's going to allow me to piece together an investment framework to navigate these complicated times. Now, normally we give you seven day trial for one dollar, but because this is so important for all of you, and I think it's one of the most important pieces of content we've ever done, we're extending that free trial for two weeks for one dollar. So you get the entire campaign of all of these great minds. And it's only one dollar for all of this. So just go to realvision.com forward slash global recession to find out more and join me as I try and figure out what the hell's going on. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.